Welcome to Insightful Leaders. I'm your host, Ryan Stewart, and this is the show where I interview proven leaders in customer insights and CX who share their stories, strategies, and insights to drive meaningful change in your organization. Our guest for today's episode is Virginia Weiwei. Virginia is an accomplished and influential data-focused executive with diverse skills and experience across a range of industries such as aviation, mining, manufacturing, government, medical research and finance. She has experience in developing and implementing enterprise information management strategies and data science and analytics strategies in medium to large organizations. Virginia is also formally trained in machine learning and statistics and is innovative thinker with experience turning ideas into commercial reality. It's really great to have you on the show, Virginia, and I think we can probably jam on machine learning and statistics for hours if you wanted to. Yep, love that stuff. Yes. <laughs> so let me get straight into it. I suspect for um, large organizations who find they've now got more customer data than they originally thought, um, thought that they would have, they panic, they feel that panic setting in around how they're going to understand it all. Um, and I guess that probably is derived from if you're not very deliberate at the start with having a strategy around how you're going to collect that data and how you're going to implement it, you can wake up one day and be like, well, all of a sudden I've got all this data and there's no strategy around it. How would you, you know, what are the first steps that you think about in trying to get on top of a situation like that? Is it something like a dedicated insights department? Is it something more fundamental than that than, you know, actually sitting down and trying to come up with a strategy and, and wrangle the data first before you think about trying to get anything from the data? So I know, so yeah, often I think people would start with, hey, let's try and get all of the data, you know, get all the, the data warehouse sorted, get it all talking to each other in the right ways and let's do a lovely, um, you know, some people want to do a perfect clean up job, but I start at the other end at, of how are you how, how are you actually going to use that data? And even if uh, organisations or, or leaders don't have an idea of what they want to do with the customer data, I sort of, I can draw on previous examples from previous organisations about what are the sort of business questions or how would it benefit your organisation to know X, Y, Z about your customers. So um, if I just use a quick example from Koala, where I'm at now, um, we could have gone down the option of trying to perfect um, a customer data warehouse, set up, you know, de-identified unique um, ID, IDs for every customer, make sure every link works. But essentially, the I, I flipped it around and we said, what sort of question at the moment would we like to be able to answer for our business based on customer data? And it was actually the text of all of our tickets and all of our help desk tickets that was of interest to Koala because they wanted to know, are there FAQs on the website that we've missed? And are there, you know, we think we know our business and why people get in touch with us, but are there just fundamental gaps in our knowledge or assumptions on our customers that we um, have missed? And so therefore, I didn't, we didn't need to know that Fred rang at 2pm on a Friday about, I don't know, this mattress delivery to Brisbane, we just needed to know why was Fred calling. So we were able to save ourselves all of that, you know, quite tiresome work, building the data warehouse and doing text analytics on that. And just for the listeners, a really interesting thing that we found out was um, when we, we're an online only store, and when we're on sale, we were getting a lot of questions about our 120 night return policy. So Koala has quite a generous try it for 120 nights. You can return it within that period, no questions asked. 
what was coming up in our sale period, so Boxing Day sales, cyber sale, was does that 120-night return policy still hold in sales? Which we go, of course it does, but many other online retailers or, and you would probably all know yourselves, when there's a sale, you often know that you cannot send this back or return it or swap it because it's on sale. So that was a, a really interesting nugget of information that we gleaned only from text data and from also time bounding it within sale, before sale, after sale. And then because of that, we were able to change something as simple as the FAQs on the website, bring that to the top of the sale FAQs, save a bunch of time for our CS people, and also have an important message out there um, about Koala's return policy. So that was a, a, lo a long-winded way of answering that question. But essentially, it's like, don't start perfecting the warehouse, work out the business questions that, that that the data can help you answer and you'd be surprised how messy the data can be and you can still get insights out of it. Yeah, we had a, a guest earlier on in the season from Salesforce and, and one of her takeaway points was, and I feel like there's a large degree of overlap here, it is don't bother collecting the data or asking the question if you don't have a good answer or a good explanation for what you're going to do with that information once you've got it because you're just wasting your own time and, and the time of the person that you're collecting that information from. This almost extends that idea to don't bother trying to over-engineer and create the perfect data environment if it isn't clear what downstream benefit, commercial benefit is going to have to the organisation by you performing that action. Yeah, and even often they'll say, can you just add, you know, X field or Y field or, you know, a different checkbox for the for the customer service agents without them realising that's actually quite a bit of data engineering work and with downstream effects on the data because you've now got to re-engineer things that didn't need to talk to each other previously. And so then if they can't articulate a massive benefit or not massive but, a you know, a significant enough benefit, then we say, no, we don't add that checkbox just for nicety's sake. Mm. And I assume to answer the question of downstream benefits of, you know, performing an action, whether it be an analysis or engineering the data warehouse, you probably need to answer that question sufficiently, a relatively good understanding of the customer journey. Yes, definitely. And so um, before we started this piece of work, we do it was in some very heavy text analytics. We did have a, a, a very good customer journey map, but again, it was, a, I'd say, like a theoretical customer journey map. And there were cases of like, well, what about if someone rings from, you know, very rural, I don't know, New South Wales, and their bridge has been washed out by a, by a flood? Where's that in the customer journey? And so there was, there was many um, little side paths. So they'd captured the main flow of customer journey, but many side paths that hadn't been captured. And often they're the ones that take up a lot of time and cause a lot of angst because they're so unique. And so what have we had it? We had a, a journey map. We did the, the work and we've now re-engineered that map because um, we found that it was capturing, I think there was about 20% of possible journeys that weren't being captured. Um, and a lot of those mm. were very, you know, unique journeys, but we've then reconfigured a lot of our drop-down options for customer service agents. And we're now down to sort of less than 5% now are coming in as, you know, we've never heard that before or we've not dealt with that before. Yeah, interesting. So it sounds like one of the early initiatives when you got to Koala was to to build out that text analytics solution to understand what was driving ticket volumes. How did you think about building that in-house versus trying to buy a solution or get some external um, solution in? 
Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, I mean, we're talking about this. So it was one of the main initiatives, I guess I should say. We had tons of other, um, you know, data stuff going on, replatforming, et cetera. But, you know, specific to this conversation about CX and customer data, that text analytics was the place we started. Um, and I guess, you know, you can see my grey hair. I've been about 30 years in this industry so and in, and in many different organisations. So I have trialled a lot of off-the-shelf text analytics um, software and apologies for anyone who is a software salesperson for text analytics software, but I found that they weren't um, as flexible. They were quite rigid. They weren't as flexible. Um, even just little things like capitalising spelling mistakes, it's that um, they, they didn't pick them up as well. But I also should layer on that that I have a background in machine learning. So I was lucky enough that I could use open source. Um, so I worked in R, the open source language, and um, I could write my own specific algorithms and code um, because I knew, yeah, I knew I had the experience to do that and I didn't see the benefit from buying something um, off the shelf. So that, that, was, that was sort of mm. my journey come, coming from experience of testing a lot of software. Um, and even the algorithms I needed were not super complex. So string searching, um, clustering, so um, what's it called, like affinity diagrams of people tend to use this word and that word or these phrases together. Um, yeah, that was really all I needed. And I found that I could I could write that myself with some simple open source libraries. Um, and I guess I should say too, we weren't looking for, for a 95, 91%. So it's a different problem than say you were, you know, even with Google predictive text and other other problems where you actually are trying to very accurately predict the next word or predict what's going on in a conversation. This was, we were just looking for themes. So really 80%, if we picked up 80% of the themes and even better, if we picked up things we didn't realise, then we were fine. So that again was a trade-off that I didn't need to have the latest and greatest software to do that. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think a lot of the framing of the text analytic solutions that you get off the shelf will be very much around classification, right? Trying to classify to a pre-trained model and, and using some sort of supervised technique to, to, to tag text. Whereas the problem that sounds like you're trying to solve was much more one of exploration and understanding, right? It's, it's almost like, how can we use a, a set of technology to understand broadly speaking you know with some degree of certainty but we're not looking for f1 scores of 95 percent. no no how do we understand that that didn't even come into it we didn't even numerically measure how good this analytics was we we literally got Mm. um and the output was a series of text it wasn't even charts and numbers and figures it was here's the themes and here's the themes grouped by um we did it by region if because um Mm -hmm. you, you can imagine metro customers have a certain experience an expectation of the world. You know, you think I live in Sydney, I should be able to yeah. get my package within four hours. Whereas if you live, um, interestingly, the divide, if you live, say, somewhere on the central coast or between Sydney and Newcastle, are you metro or are you regional? And do you have different expectations? Whereas if you're in mm. very rural Hunter Valley, say, which is where I am right now, you know that it can be hit and miss and you're just thankful for. So it. we looked at these text you know, insights by by region type um, and also by the period, so a promo period versus a regular period, uh, et cetera, and we literally analysed text, not heavy, you know, machine learning algorithm metrics. Yep. We didn't look at any of that. 
and yep. is very much unsupervised. Um, you... Yeah. 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 And, you know, I have a natural tendency to, well, I'm very biased, obviously, but the way that you approach it is exactly the right way to approach it from a technology standpoint, in my opinion. Um, how do you think about um, the composition of, let's call it the data engine of an organization? Um, because that can be a very kind of broad classification of roles, right? You can imagine a world where um, obviously the people that are doing data infrastructure sit inside this department. There's some leadership that sits inside this department. You could imagine data science sitting inside this department. And then you have areas where it gets a little more fuzzy. For example, you know, in a digital business, where does a customer insights person that's providing insights to the business on the customer experience, where do they sit? Do they sit in the experience team? Do they sit in the data team? Do they sit somewhere else? How do you think about that, that makeup of org structure? Yeah, so um, again, I'll use Koala as an example, but then I'll move towards um, what I believe is right for other organisations. So Koala is only five years old. Um, and for those listeners who aren't sure what Koala is, it started off as the original bed in a box brand in Australia. So it's an online only store, um, has moved from bed in a box to uh, furniture with a sustainability um message and sustainability way of making furniture and values. Um, and then I guess, you know, just growing with the number of products that are offered, but still 100% online. So have been going for five years, which is quite young. Um, I, I came into Koala 18 months ago, and it's just quite funny. They sort of, we, we, they wanted to get serious about this data stuff, not knowing what this data stuff is, but hey, we need you to come and get serious about that. And so for, I'd say for a young not mature and and not a lot of legacy systems, as you can imagine. We, I made the decision to have all of anything to do with data in the one team in my team centrally. So the data engineer sits in our team, whereas in some more mature organisations, it sits with tech because of the legacy systems or it's a, a deployed system and then as a natural sit with tech. So data engineers sit with me. The dashboard builders, so they're sort of the BI typical team they sit in my team we don't have a customer insights person yet but any customer insights gets done in my team with the bunch of analysts that we have um gosh financial i'm just thinking of all the different parts across the business where product insights all of that sit in in one centralized team and we did that because we want to have a common way of um, storing accessing and serving up data to people um, in the business, and so we get a, a common way of doing things around data. But what we then see, you know, perhaps in a couple of years as Koala grows to be much bigger and we've also, I'd say, you know, educated or, or made the business more aware of what data can do, that the analysts will sit in their own, so the customer service will have their own analyst um Finance will have their own analyst. The logistics, all of those guys will have their own analyst. But at the moment, I'm sort of doing this with my hands. We're sort of bringing it all in and we're all one very tight team. Um, we're also replatforming. So when I joined, there were four cloud-based warehouses, all with bits and pieces of things in it. So over the last 12 months, it's been a massive effort, but we've replatformed and we've succeeded in getting one um I don't know if we're allowed to say brand names on this show, but if we're not the ABC or not. But Go for it. Yeah, so we've, we've used uh, Snowflake on an AWS as a platform and some, some mm -hmm. modern ETL tools, which are really brilliant at um, managing APIs and, and opening gateways and transforming data in, in one go. Um, but then I've mm -hmm. had been in, um, to say, for example, I was, at, you know, I was at Boeing for a lot of years. They have... Um, 
they have analysts in each function, not a central. They have a math mathematics data research group, but the um, the analysts are spread over different functions. And you know, Boeing is a very different company to Koala. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And so um, the analysts that that you you know in this theoretical world, let's fast forward time two years, right? And let's say you're you're on that path and you've executed the the dispersion of analysts into the end teams, but they, I guess they come back together at some regulatable and they all sit in one department. What's the, what do you see the roles and responsibilities of those analysts being? Are they going to also be the dashboard builders? Are they just there to kind of interpret and, and um, present results back to the business unit that, that optimizes the operation of that business unit? Or are you thinking about it in a different way? So I'm actually thinking about it in terms of um, the skills of those people. Um, and as you sort of, an analyst is not an analyst, is not an, you know, they're not all just cookie cutter. Whereas some analysts are really brilliant at getting alongside people in the business and drawing out to make sure they're answering the right questions. Um, and I use an example, I'll use a, just a quick example. When I was running the Statistics Bureau at the Department of Transport in New South Wales, the analysts in my team were just asked, hey, can you get the number of um, Sunday, so in Sydney, it's $2.50 all day for a public transport. Can you guys just get the number of um, $2.50 things on a Sunday? Which we absolutely, we could do that. But then there was someone in my team who was very skilled and just said, hang on, why Like, why are you asking that? And and so they, they're the type of analysts that, yes, they can just sit and code and give you, you know, 13, whatever the number was. But they also said, well, why are you doing that? And it turned out that the... Yeah, the government was also partnering with the Tourism Council and are we making a difference? And and that was the question they were trying to answer rather than a fundamental, how many tickets did we sell? So in my team mm. in the early days now, I'm keeping an eye out on who are the people that are really good at drawing those business problems out and getting alongside the, the problem owner. And then who are the people that, some people are just brilliant at designing dashboards. They've got almost that graphic design and analytics. So who are those people? Um, and then who are the people that just like to code on their own with headphones on and not necessarily have to interact but be very, they're very good, very precise to feed the machine with the numbers. So rather than um, designing you must have this position, that position, I come about it of looking at the skills and how people are showing, you know, what what excites them in, a, in an analytics role because you need all of them mm. to be successful. Interesting. And is the idea that you want to have a that skill set in all of the end teams or are you thinking about one of those particular skill sets in the end teams and then maybe some additional support for those people in a centralised team? Yeah, so I think possibly like a, definitely an analyst, a number puller outer and a chart drawer, you know, someone that can draw charts and pull numbers in every team. But that, um, that sort of consulting position that I've described is they're harder to come by and it's not everyone's cup of tea. So again, in when I've run larger teams, you know, say in the transport department, um, I ran a larger uh, a team of 50 or 60 at BHP. It was, we, we identified who were those consultants and they were more a roaming consultant and they were able to speak the language of the business, but also the language of the analytics team. And so they were more of a floating resource. Um, again, a dashboard mm. designer is quite a specific skill when you're really good at that. So that is generally a floating resource. But um, I shouldn't say a basic, but, you know, someone that's got that fundamental can convert problems into pulling the numbers, draw a chart, service people, there would be one of those in every team. 
in every, I would say function, but is. Um, and thinking about um, much larger organisations, perhaps like the Boeing that you that you referenced before, or the New South Wales Transport Department, I, I assume that as an organisation reaches a certain size, these analyst roles, whereas in a smaller organisation, the analyst role might have several of these skills and set across several of these disciplines, perhaps they're pulling numbers out and they're also doing dashboards. As as you get bigger, you're going to want to specialize those roles, and perhaps you even you even introduce specializations that you didn't have before. What is there any recommendations you've got for larger organizations of specializations they should consider hiring in the analyst or the the insights department, and and why? Yeah, definitely. So I'll I'll use um, BHP as an example. Um, so when I, I, I there's a brand new role at BHP, sort of heading up analytics and you know had a team an org chart of about 50 and at the time they were categorized into data scientists and I'll explain what each of these meant so data scientists um, and basically and data analysts and that was it and so a data scientist was the if you think the person with a maths degree who codes quite techy the data analysts were more of the consulting problem drawing out problem definition type people so it was quite a narrow view of the world and then um, about probably six months in and, you know, getting my feet under the desk, I realised we needed so many more specialisations and I'm sure this is a common theme for people. So definitely a data engineer and I almost think you need to start with data engineers these days, but they're so hard to hire and um, all of the, the big banks and people that pay very well have hoovered a lot of data engineers up. So definitely data engineer. Um, data viz we brought in as a specialization so where there was no data viz team I think there was six or eight data viz specialists in my team when I left BHP and that was something that, that really hadn't been thought about before there's also some new positions that are becoming more prevalent and they're called um, data journalists or data storytellers and sort of you know don't laugh but they're the people again that have that that um, they can write and they can tell a story, but they can apply the analytics layer and they can think like a um, an analyst over the top. So definitely data engineer, definitely viz, because often then a, you need to do data engineering and viz before you can get really deep on the machine learning and the technical models anyway. And then a, a data storyteller, which will also help give the team credibility and kudos because you've solved relevant problems and you're able to communicate those problems. Yeah, I've, uh, I definitely will not be in the laughing category for storytelling. Um, I hear people talk about it all the time. And it's, you know, I was speaking on, a, on someone else's podcast recently. It's much easier. It's hard for an entire organization to have empathy, right, as a, as a, as a continuous entity to have empathy about a particular situation because uh, an organization is made up of so many individuals. But it's much easier for an individual with an organization to have that empathy and it's much easier as someone that's presenting data or telling a story to build that empathy within individuals rather than thinking about how can I build this empathy within an organization. And one of the ways that I find that manifests itself and one of the ways I think works very well with storytelling and why storytelling is becoming so popular, it's difficult to present a situation um, that's happening in a customer experience lens, you know, we're producing this bad outcome for customers and therefore we're reducing our uh, satisfaction score by X amount. I mean, I understand that logically, but if I can come and say, hey, this is Sally, this is the experience that Sally had, this is how it made Sally feel, this is how it affected Sally's ultimate behavior, 
it's much easier for me to empathize with Sally. And then I can say, by the way, there's another 10,000 Sally. I was about to say, and there's another X thousand or Sally is 20% Mm. of our customer, you know, our current identified customer base. Yeah, exactly. And then, so they empathize and then you go, and by the way, it's not just Sally. There's lots of Sally's out there. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's a powerful tool. I'm glad to to hear you say that storytellers or, or Data journalists is a, is a specialization bigger organization should consider. And, you know, even if you're an analyst at a smaller organization, if you can add that skill set to your, to your toolbox, then I think you'd be much better positioned to not only position yourself in the job market, but provide value to the organization. Yeah, it's interesting. Sorry, just, um, a, a, oh, sorry, just a very quick aside. I do speak at a lot of uh, like hmm. young women in STEM or, you know, young women career opportunities. At, you know, most people wouldn't even dream of, well, I'm going to be a mathematician. But I said, hey, do you know, in Mm. the world I work in, do you love graphic design? Do you love um, art? But are you also interested in why things happen and and how the world works? Well, then do I have a career for you? And then say you can still Mm. keep your creative interests but tell tell a very worthwhile story that's going to make a decision at the same time. So not going in and saying you have to do maths to be involved in insights and data. You can be... You know, you could be on the arts side of the fence, um, which was unheard mm. of in my day when you know, going through. Yeah, 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 I can imagine. Um, thinking about insights and analyst folks, um, and the people that work in those job disciplines, regardless of the specialty, speciality rather, they are the quality of the work and, and I guess ultimately how they're going to be judged is very much tied to the quality of the inputs, right? Uh, and, you know, there's the old saying in the data world, garbage in, garbage out. If they can't get good access to, if they can't ac- get access to good data, then it really hamstrings their, hamstrings their ability to produce something of quality at the other end that has commercial impact at the organization. But often, and, and as you've talked about with the data engineer, that's not generally someone that would traditionally sit inside an insights or an analyst department and, and you know, perhaps doesn't even talk to those people. So... How do you think that what's the best approach for insights people or analysts or perhaps even organizations to ensure that those insights people and analysts have access to the right type of high quality data so they can produce the results that the organization wants them to produce? I I think there's definitely um, the organization and a lot of what I do is education when I first come into an organization. Um, So I share the art of the possible, but I also show the maturity of the data journey. Um, and, and a lot of that then speaks to needing to have data engineers or to be really honest about the state of your data. Don't hire all these brilliant people who can write amazing, you know, non-linear whatever models when they don't have the, yeah, they don't have the basic ingredients. So I often use that, the restaurant example about the, the, the data is the raw ingredients. Um, and is your organization someone that's just had a, you know, a Woolies, truck tip all the ingredients on the driveway or does your organization already have all the ingredients in the pantry to help the analysts Uh, and so also as part of that education is that sometimes you know it's 80 percent of the effort in getting an insight or solving a problem is the cleaning up the data accessing the data getting the data to talk to each other so making it really clear the level of effort involved to get the data prepared but then also if I'm working with analysts in my team, there's ways around communicating, you know, okay, we think we're going to get a, um, particularly in Koala, COVID was a very interesting problem. Did we get a boost from lockdown and COVID, which 
you could imagine the answer is you know yes being an online furniture company who have you know work from home everyone's oh I've got to do something about my office so and so they said to me what percentage um, benefit did we get from COVID and so again teaching the analysts you could say 15 percent but given the state of the data I was given, it could be between 12 and 18, say. For, and I just made those numbers up because it's mm. a company secret. But also yeah, yeah. educating people that I can give you an answer, but depending on the level of what I've been given, it could be within 5%, could be within 2%, within 10%. Um, and also not, I think I've seen a lot of really good analysts lose faith and and leave organizations because they're the ones that get left to clean up all the excel spreadsheets and all the so i mean no one wants to do it but hiring the right people to do that sort of work is what organizations need to to realize and that you'll very quickly um demotivate and you're wasting your money paying data scientists and analysts if you expect them to be cleaning up spreadsheets sorry so that was a bit of a roundabout Mm, way of answering but hopefully a couple of little insights there I like that approach. I like that approach of, um, you know, it's almost like putting the emphasis back on the organization by you don't just turn around and give them a poor answer. You turn around and give it and say, hey, here's the answer I got for you. Unfortunately, it's it's in this range and I can't give you a better idea because I don't have the quality of data to give you a more accurate answer. But if I had that quality of data, I would be able to give you a more accurate answer. And I think that's a great way of framing it because it, it kind of shifts responsibility back to the organization, right? to say yeah. I don't have the resources. And even with COVID, you know, because COVID I think for all of us went on a lot longer than we thought that, you know, that initial burst in April, March 2020 and now we're still dealing with it. And so also giving you the, them the answer of, you know, if in another th- I'll rerun this model in another two months and see, you know, see if we get a tighter answer, see if the answer is still, you know, con- consistent with what I've just told you as well. So, um, mm. yeah, buying a bit of time is always good as well. It's sort of... I can give you this answer yep. today, but in a month or two months, I can give you X better answer and then let them make the decision yep. too. Mm, yeah, I like that. So I've left the, the easiest question till last. I can't imagine you'll have much to say on this topic. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to pick your brain on um, the single source of truth for an organization um, and how you think about what a single source of truth is um, even the anatomy of it, and, and if you want to get as specific as what sort of system should it sit within, then um, happy to hear that as well. I'm leaving it deliberately broad because in my experience, single source of truth could mean absolutely anything. So I'll let you take it where you want to take it. Yeah, okay. No, I, um, again, I could talk about this all day, but we've got 10 minutes, five minutes. Um, so I, again, I'll use Koala as an example. So I, And more as an example of what not having a single source of truth can do. So, again, when I came in, multiple systems, you know, and it got born of a startup, you know, getting very big very quickly and, and doing really well. And so I was a bit cheeky. So I went into the ELT because I was trying to get some funding to replatform and say this is the way we need to go. And I just said to them, hey, so how many mattresses did we sell in August, you know, of X date? And I put up three answers for them. And they all they all thought about it. And I think there was a t- about a twenty percent gap in the answers, and they all thought about it. And you know, they all had various answers. And I said, well, depending on which report you run from which cloud system, that's you'll get those three different answers. And then that's all I needed to say to then 
get they realize the importance of knowing for koala and probably other retail it's like how much money is coming in the door how many units are you selling how many people are you reaching not having a single source of truth um, led to almost even sometimes in meetings people would try and one up it's like, well, my, my report says this, well, my report says that, who's going to win, very distracting, wastes time, etc. So we, for Koala, we spent a lot of time getting our order. So basically, yeah, the, the, the cash register data, single source of truth, that was the absolute first thing we tackled in our data warehouse. And so I don't have any specific ideas of which software or which warehouse it has to live in, just mm. A, you know, solid, reputable yeah. warehouse. Um, so that was a very important single source of truth. But whether or not it was just, say, our mattress range, whether or not we sell, I don't know, 5% king, 30% queen, etc. if it's 5% or 4%, if it's 20% or 19%, those, that, you, you, that's not, um, you know, you don't need that gold standard single source of truth for that, you need more relative. So we've also introduced a gold, silver, bronze system with our data. Mm. And so gold also, you imagine, is financial data. So if you're being audited, you, you can't just have sloppy numbers. So, yeah, for our data, gold, silver, bronze, and even some of the customer examples that I used earlier, they're bronze because we go, don't try and clean it, don't try and merge it. The nuggets you need to get out of it are in there in its current state. So that, that can be um, bronze bronze level data but our ordering and our sales and our, our units need to be gold standard and then oh, what we've done is the organization now only so we use tableau they only go to tableau everyone knows it's updated at 6 a.m and they're the numbers they never disagree is it the numbers don't disagree um, and it's brought a lot of people back into the dashboarding and insights because another symptom of not having a single source of truth is people are like, well, pff, why do I bother looking at it? Because it's, you know, Gary's is different to mine. And so it's been a really lovely benefit that just focusing on one sort of set of measures has brought all the organisation back, um, back to the dashboard table, so to speak. Can I, uh, I love that categorization system. I'm, I am probably going to borrow it, fair warning. Um, I, yeah, I'll shoot you. There's a little diagram. I'll shoot it to you about how you make those oh, decisions. perfect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, we might include that in the show notes so everyone else can get access as well. Can I drag you down into the weeds, though, for a little bit uh, in particular on this topic? Um, I'm I'm assuming from what you've said that um, in your your view is that single source of truth should live in a warehouse. What role do you see something like a customer data platform playing in, in a kind of modern data um, tech stack? Um, mm. So, again, I see it as um, a, a source of customer data. So there's many ways customers interact mm. with the organisation. Um, and I use it, yeah, customer, sorry, you're talking about customer data platform, not a, um, oh, it's a, not a CRM. Not a CRM, no. Not a CRM. So Although, CRM. yeah, CDP, but like it's a very, the, the lines are fuzzy, right? Yep. Yep. So so I see a CDP, and again, this is just my view and how I've used it, as more of a macro trend identifier. So different behaviours, different clustering, different groups of, you know, a customer who does this and this and this and this is more likely to do Y or Z or customers who drop off at this point have are more likely to be this type of behaviour. So I, I use it more for 
macro trends and sort of segmenting customers rather than um, needing to keep an accurate record of every single person um, that touches mm. anything on our site. If that, and I yeah, think too, because we're a pure e, um, there's no bricks and mortar at Koala. Our entire shop is our website. So we've got very, very detailed tagging of, of every type of journey and behavior on the site to, yeah, try and stop people dropping off and encourage them to pursue to a sale. And and that data classification system, that kind of gold, silver, bronze, would would that different type of data potentially live in different systems or would gold, silver, bronze all live inside the data warehouse? Oh, I'm just trying to think. No, it could live in different systems as long as you knew the mm. pathway to go and get it. But I must be at Koala, we've decided I'd, I'd say 90% of our data or our sources are in the one warehouse in Snowflake. But then the way we treat each of those 90%, some of them we treat to gold standard, some of them we just let sit there as bronze standard and some are silk. So it's what we do with it inside the warehouse is where we apply our gold, silver, bronze. And so that people know if we serve um, the finance team something for an audit or, gosh, the logistics team a set of orders, they know that it's come from the one place and so they know it's got a universal way, um, a treatment put over it. But we're also, mm. I can't pretend yep. that we've completed the gold standard on everything we want to get gold standard, but it's a journey. But um, it's exciting being somewhere that's willing to invest in doing that and trusting me as a data leader yeah. to tell them the priorities. Mm. Awesome. That's been super helpful. I think um, to wrap things up, we might get on to the rapid fire question round, if that's all right with you. Sure. Pressure's on. Um, so I'm going to ask you, yeah, it is. I'm going to ask you five rapid fire questions about um, customer insights or data or even data analysis and also about yourself. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, they're easy questions, I promise. I was about to say there's no right and wrong, is there? Like I've got performance anxiety. There's no right or wrong. No. <laughs> Uh, no, no right or wrong, no right or wrong. Um, what's the best piece of um, either data or insights or, or analysis advice that you have ever received? Um, the 80-20 rule. So as a, as a young, you know, growing up statistician, you know, trying to, and, and I think the way we often think, people like us who are trained in these sciences, you try and get everything perfect and correct and mathematically beautiful but seriously 80 percent um you can often get 80 percent of the answer in 20 percent of the time and still get the 80 percent benefit for the organization or for whoever you're working with and you can spend 80 percent of your time trying to polish that last little bit um meanwhile people have moved on so 80 20 yeah 100 percent agree um what are you most excited about in the world of data or insights or data analysis at the moment? Gosh, see, I feel like um, I'm not at the end of my career, but I'm, you know, more mature in my career. So I'm excited to um, see, you know, young up-and-comers and see how the field evolves and see jobs that, you know, say when I was at school and, you know, looking through careers, that, that jobs that didn't exist, jobs that don't exist now. Um, in the data world and I just think only more and more and and I think COVID has uh, sadly has helped people really think about charts and numbers and and the decision making um, that's out there by the, the good use of data so you're yeah, seeing what the future is going to be like um, 
when I when I'm less active, I suppose, in the scene. Yeah. Now, no pressure, but this is definitely my favorite question. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Okay. Um, I think I've already done a koala piece on this. Um, Bad Blood, the Theranos story is it's like it's so gripping it's an amazing read so it's got science it's got villains it's got um sort of corporate skullduggery and you read it and you think no surely they're not going to get away with this and they keep so um yeah I actually read that when I was having a break from a not a great career experience myself and it really um I couldn't put it down so um bad blood and if you want to look at um you know statistics and data books i really love the david mccandless stuff so information is beautiful um those sort of more coffee table books and especially to get um family members and kids and people talking about data as well so he does some really cool stuff and one of the you're right the bad blood book uh favorite of mine as well and one of the benefits of reading that book now is um you can, there's a real world, there's there's events that have happened in literally in the last 12 months that uh, go beyond where that book takes you, right? So you can finish reading the book and you can get online and go follow how that story has progressed since the end of that book. What's an interesting, fun little fact about you that most people don't know? I, um, so where I'm actually sitting, I use a very, where I'm sitting in a shack that we built up in the Hunter Valley with recycled materials. So that's my passion. So, um, I can actually use quite a lot of power tools. So that's what people don't tend to, they think I'm just a, a, a lady girl that sits on a computer. I can use power tools and big, big beefy ones as well. So this is. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. And then easiest question, if people want to get in touch with you after listening to this episode, what's the easiest way for them to do that? Um, shoot a LinkedIn message. I'm pretty um, quick with my, so the private messages on LinkedIn. Um, mm-hmm. Or if you want to send a request on LinkedIn, just say why and that you heard the podcast. I get a lot of unsolicited requests and I ignore most of mm-hmm. them. So please at least say, hi, I'm blah, blah. I listen to this. I'd like to connect. Then I will definitely get back to you. Amazing. And we'll uh, include a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes. Virginia, thanks for joining us today. That was super insightful. I certainly learned a lot from listening and I'm definitely going to borrow that data categorization uh, advice that you had. Uh, really enjoyed chatting it over and I, and I think our listeners would too. So thank you. Thanks for the conversation.